Hello, this is the Pod Goblins Hat, a podcast about the Moomins. This is episode 11, which is about spilled milk, battle dances and holes. I'm Dave, a person who has interacted with a lot of interactive picture books. I'm Nina, a person who hides away. And we're reading all the way through Tuve Janssen's Moomins books together. It's the first time for me. Whereas if I wrote my memoirs, the Moomins would be featured pretty regularly. We're starting by reading the storybooks for children in order of publication, and eventually we will cover all of Tuve Janssen's Moomin stories. Today we're breaking with our format a little bit and reading the first two Moomin picture books, the book about Moomin, Mimble and Little Mai, and Who Will Comfort Toffle? Our normal theme is relationships, which we're keeping throughout, and our special theme for these is interactivity. So where do these come in, like, publication order then? 1952 is when the book about Moomin, Mimble and Little Mai comes out, after the exploits of Moomin Papa, but before Moomin Summer Madness. Right. And then the second of the two that we're going to talk about, Who Will Comfort Toffle, doesn't come out till 1960. So you, as a child, were read this first one, the book about Moomin Mimble and Little Mai? No. No? The first time I read that book was in prep for this episode. Oh. It was certainly knocking about within the family. But what I have found out is that in episode one of this podcast, we reflected on where did the Moomins come into my life? And we knew that the vector point was my dad. Yeah. And that he had read them to me as a child. And I said, well, unfortunately, I can't ask him about that because he's dead. But... Your sisters are alive. Turns out, of course, my older (laughs) sister is alive. And so she was the first of my father's children. And she listened to the first episode of the podcast and answered the question. She was read a version, a different version than we're going to talk about today, of the book about Moomin, Mimble and Little Mai as a toddler. So when was your sister a toddler? Was she a toddler in the 50s or 60s? Let's say 50s or 60s. I reckon the 50s might have been when he bought it. Yeah, so this was sort of contemporary with the time of publication. Yeah, she sent a picture of the copy that she had as a child, which she still got. And it's lovely and kind of aged and destroyed. But you can still make out that it was 8S, I think it is, and 6D. So we're talking about money in the UK that I don't understand. Eight shillings and sixpence? Yeah, I think so. Something like that. <laughs> the picture on the front is the same. It's Tuve Janssen's images. Who translated that one? I can't make out who the translator was. And I don't think it's even written on the front covers. No, it doesn't tend to be. But it was published by Ernest Ben rather than our one, which is a sort of publication. So the one we've both read is part of that kind of new influx of interest in Tuve's work that is done by a more modern publisher. And the texts are different. Yeah, It's quite hard to find original versions of the book. And the ones that are out there are £650 minimum. So I'm going to be telling my sister what a jewel she's got. (laughs) 
the version that we're going to be talking about was translated, or at least I don't know if she fully translated it. I think it was like with a translator. Yeah. But it was by a poet and crime novel author, Sophie Hanna. She's a very good crime novel author. Have you read her? I like her books, yeah. Oh, great. She also retold Agatha Christie's Pryro. Yeah. She's been given that gig as well. So she's got loads going on. It says by Sophie Hanna in 2001 with the help of a literal translation by Sylvester Mazzarella. So maybe that was the original literal translator? Maybe it was the original translator. Something for us to keep in mind is that this translator or the author of the text of this book is alive and well and we follow her on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> so that's all to keep in mind. Before we get into comparative readings and general chat, should we should we tell people what the book's about? Do you want to start since this is a short one and you can probably keep it Oh my snappy. God. Okay, so the book about Moomin, Mimble and Little Mai is a straightforward journey story. Moomin Troll has some milk and he's taking it to his mother. On the way, he thinks that he sees Moomin House, but when he gets close enough, he discovers that's the Mimble's hair. She has lost her sister. Little Mai. We then look for Little Mai for about half the book more, meeting some various characters on our journeys. And then once we meet Little Mai, when she rescues the Mimble and Moomin Troll from a vacuum cleaner that they've been <laughs> sucked into by a Hemulin by accident... They think that they've rescued her, of course. Yes. And then they carry on together, all three of them, towards Moomin Mama and the Moomin House. On the way, they upset a filly junk who runs away um, and they chase after the filly junk. They discover where the Hattie Fatners live. There's some interesting Hattie Fatner lore in this book. Yeah. And then finally, they, of course, reach Moomin Mama with the milk, but the milk has gone off, so they have to drink sweet pink berry juice yeah and that's the end of the story well done that was very brief <laughs> i'm only allowed to do synopsis when they don't involve like long books the reason being listeners if we haven't made this clear is that i'm someone who feels like every part of the story needs to be told and nina i do not feel that way thinks that we need to do synopsises <laughs> the other thing to note about the story is it's one of the kinds of stories where there's holes in the pages and the fun comes from that yeah including the fact that it basically ends with a hole yes. into the world. So there is a hole in each page, which means that on whatever double-page spread you happen to be, there is a window into the page you were on before and a window onto the spread that you're going to after. So there's this interesting thing with you can always see the past and the future, but through very specifically shaped holes that really like shape your perspective about what that thing up in the future is. Yeah. It's also interesting because all of these holes are portals from one page to the next for our characters. Our characters canonically travel through the holes each time. And it does that thing that a lot of picture books do, which is ask the question to the listener. At the end of each page, now guess what happens in a minute. Thank you. 
I read this book earlier this morning to a child who is almost five. He was super into it. He also pointed out to me, which I had missed, Little Mai isn't missing. Yes, I noticed this. She's there. She's there, on the page, where she's supposed to be missing. The entirety of that section, every single page they're looking for Little Mai, Little Mai is there. It's like, where's Wally in that regard? Yeah, so he was really into it from that perspective, and that's a really fun thing to have in a picture book as well. There's also a literal part of the book where the Philly Jonk is so scared that she runs through the book and makes the hole. So she rips it. So that one's supposed to look like a rip, which is really interesting. There's also an invitation in this book, a bit that's left blank, an invitation to the child to draw the Philly Jonk for themselves. Yep. Which I really like. Big fan of that. I loved that. Yeah. I loved that a lot. Another function of the holes in the pages is this is one of those like early picture books where it costs money for each colour that you put on a page. So each page typically is printed in maybe two colours. One of them has three. Basically, like they'd put all the black on and then say they'd put all the purple on and then all the yellow on. It's not like modern printing techniques. So some of these pages probably cost more money, but... She's also sort of saving money by borrowing colour from the pages before and after. That's right. For certain scenes, which I think is really cool. This book really showcases Tuve's love of colour. Yeah. The colours are shades rather than like primary colours. As Nina said, every page makes some choices and only uses those colours. So they're very dynamic. Yeah. Whilst Moomins remain white at all times, we discover in this book that Hemulins are different colours. Yeah. There's a kind of sense of like Richard Scary, where there's lots of different characters that you see all through the book, but you don't get their full stories. The kids get to decide those stories. I wanted to talk about some of the references in this book to other places in the Moomin canon. So right at the end, Moomin Mama has filled up a black top hat with berries, which of course happens in Finn Family Moomin Troll with the Hobgoblin's hat. And then they're drinking berry juice, which is like the raspberry juice. In fact, in the original text, it was strawberry juice. So this is a decision by Sophie Hanna to make it that. Ah, okay. And at the beginning, we've got the dark, scary woods where, you know, things look worse in the dark. It's very floodish. And then I just noticed on this first double page spread, Moomin Troll is walking the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick road. It's very Wizard of Oz feeling. It's very like, especially picture books are often like this, but they're very sort of episodic. It's very, then this weird stuff happened, and then that wacky stuff happened, and then, you know, it's very sort of... One episode and then the next. Which is like the flood. I mean, that, that, yeah. that is how the flood works too. I want to talk about one of the side characters that I tried to follow through, who the four-year-old I was reading to immediately clocked because he's super into burglars at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> it's very burglar bill, isn't it? On the page where we find the Mimble's daughter crying about Little Mai, there is a very suspicious-looking character, all in, like, horizontal black and white stripes, with a bag of loot over one shoulder, and a sort of snufkin-like hat, and a yellow beard. Yeah. That person shows up again at the end. Yeah. Just like a guest? Yeah. <laughs> to the Moomin house? I guess, like, the Moomins are really not willing to cast judgment on stealing 
Well, Snufkin's stolen melons and he's an integral part of their family. He is, but I guess he didn't look quite so comically suspicious in doing it. It's true. What what kind of a house is he stealing from, though? It looks like quite a fancy rich person's house. So yes. maybe there's a class element to it. The yellow brick road goes up to it, so presumably it's Oz, right? Because that's where the yellow brick road ends. Well, it's not an emerald city. It's not emerald. Well, no, she's not using green in this book. Every single one of the characters you see turns up yeah. to Moomin Mama, and we see on the next page... Lots and lots and lots of glasses for all of the little people. And so, yeah, the, the, the burglar will be getting the strawberry juice. Definitely. You have a version which says it's strawberry juice. Do you want to talk a little bit about the differences between Sophie Hannah's version and the version that your sister was read? Yeah, so I've looked up a few of the pages and most of the differences seem to be about like modernising the language. Right. So there's lots of twases and alas and those sorts of things. So it's making it more kind of modern language. Oh, so it, it was in verse as well? Yes. Yeah, the okay. original was in verse and the okay. new one is in verse. The last page is basically the same, but the one before, do you want to read the one we've got? Yuck, all the milks turn sour and cheesy. Mama says, never mind, it's easy. Now we've all got a great excuse for drinking sweet pink berry juice. And the original said, alas, the milk she could not get, for it had curdled and had set. She said, now in the future we'll drink strawberry juice at every meal. Yeah, I'm glad Sophie Hannah's rewritten it. <laughs> <laughs> so th those are the kinds of changes. One of the many presents I've been bought over my time is this tray here, which I now, having read the book, understand is a still from the book that we've just read. I like it a lot. It's the purple page, and so it makes sense for that to be the one that's given to me. What is the text on it? The text is on it, and it's different. So do you want to read your one? That's not a roof or chimney pot. It's Mimble's hair, tied in a knot. She's weeping on a big tin can. Poor thing, thought Moomin Troll and ran. To Mimble, begging, please don't cry. I've lost my sister, little Mai. Okay, so this one goes, Twas not a house. He touched the knob and heard a most unhappy sob. It was poor Mimble in distress, and teardrops trickled down her dress. Said Moomin Troll, oh, please don't cry. She sobbed, I've lost my sister, Mai. So that's interesting. So she's really preserved the rhyming scheme and that sort of cadence and rhythm. Yep. But I feel like that older one is harder to read aloud now for modern people. One of the things that's really nice about the text of this book is that the font is a really nice font. Yes. It's a similar font in the original, and it's also a similar font to the letter that was written by Moomin Mama in one of the other books. The font was handwritten by Peter Blegvad. And what's really nice about the choices that are made around this font is that each character has a different way that their name is written. Yeah. And some words like woods has got a nice, like, twigginess around it. The word tall is bigger. Yeah, my favourite bit of versification in this is the way that tall is so tall it goes up into the line above it. Although it makes it harder to read aloud. It does, but then it's got a dot, dot, dot to help yeah. you going around the tall shape. And flat is flat, little yeah. my is always little. And so those are nice things. In the original text, it's similar. Little my is little. But what we lose is things like the woods, the tall... 
some of those things are new. So I don't know if they were created by Sophie Hanna or they were created by the person that you just referred to who created the font, but there's definitely a difference. The versification is more creative mm -hmm. in this modern style. So one thing I've discovered in my rabbit holes when researching the book about Moomin, Mimble and Little Mai, in Tuve's letters, <laughs> it turns out that her version of Mimble, which is in the original Mimlan or Mimla, that was a word that Tuve also used to refer to having sex, both oh. lesbian and heterosexual <laughs> sex. And she even used it as a noun. So, for example, meeting an old Mimla while running errands. Meaning like a past love. Yeah, past lover. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I mean, it explains why the Mimble has so many children, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> In both of these picture books, the Hemulin is really seen more as an antagonist and a scary thing than I feel like Hemulins are in the chapter books. That's true. I think in Who Will Comfort Toffle, the Hemulin is even referred to the same way that a grok is, like a swear word. I know. And this one, like, sucks them up into a vacuum cleaner. Oh, that's that's where the best rhyme in the thing is, actually. I'll read out this page because it has the best rhyme. It's also one of my favourite pictures. Hemulin with a vacuum hose had got some house dust up his nose. Spring cleaning, though it wasn't spring, was Hemulin's most favourite thing. Disaster struck his greedy hoover, sucking hard enough to move a... Mountain swallowed both our friends into its tube around the vents. <laughs> At that point, the words get all wobbly in terms of how they're written. Yeah, so they're like the tube of a vacuum cleaner. Yeah, the word fluff is very fluffily written. But I don't think the Hemulin did it on purpose, sucking them up. And also, the vacuum cleaner in, in that vein of children's books is seen as a cut-through, so you can see what's being sucked up through the vacuum cleaner. Yeah, so there's Moomin, his milk pail. But there's also spiders and, like... A whole fish skeleton. <laughs> a whole fish skeleton. That's a very classic children's book as well. You see whole fish skeletons all the time in children's books. Never in real life unless you happen to be eating a fish, but they just are lying around in picture books. And it's such a retro vacuum cleaner as well. I guess, did they look like this in the 1950s? Yeah. They must have done. They did. I mean, they still can look like that. You know, I've used vacuum cleaners like that from the 70s i've never seen one like this so there you go nina's generation are, are, are a post dyson generation it almost looks like a cross between a suitcase and a gun it's a it's definitely a big bit of equipment for sure yeah. they crawl out on the other side next to a river deep and wide where gaffsy with her gruesome hair gives them a mean and chilling stare and growls you fools i'll make you wish you'd stayed at home now let me fish and this is one of the best drawings in the book. Our intrepid heroes have arrived on some rocks, looks like on a beach, and Gaffsy is sitting fishing, and she has a great look. I don't know, if I get another tattoo of the Moomin, if I get a colour one, I might go with Gaffsy, because they're giving very non-binary punk energy, that picture. <laughs> yeah, is the Gaffsy in... A future Moomin book. Some of the characters in these picture books are only in the picture books, so... Gaffsy might be a book of Moomin, Mimble and Little My exclusive. But I do think Gaffsy is quite a recognisable name to me, so I reckon okay. they turn out somewhere. 
So once they've found Little Mai, one of the cutouts is in the middle of a big black tree trunk. And then you turn the page and you're inside the tree. It's sort of cut away. That's very classic as well, isn't it? The little house inside the tree. That's very like children's fantasy. That's where you'd find the fairies, maybe, or like cute little animals in Brambley Hedge, something like that. But instead, you don't find that. You find the Hattie Partners. (laughs) The colours in this are so great. So the colours for this double page spread are purple and yellow. Three of the Hattie Fatners are sitting on what looks like garden furniture with cups of tea in their laps underneath a huge... Is that a gas light? Oil lamp. Oil lamp. I'm too young for this. You are, you are. I'm not old enough to know the references I've got, but I've had older people in my life ambassadoring them down to me from their past generation. There's lightning in the sky coming out of these big grey clouds and snapping the trees, and then one sort of arm of the lightning is reaching in <laughs> into the Hattie Fatner's treehouse and it seems to be charging them. Yeah, that's right. Well, maybe they're charging the lightning. It's not It's not clear. It's not clear which direction the direction of travel is. We learn that the Hattie Fatner's drink tea. And they smell like burned out thunderclaps. Oh, I love that. Burned out thunderclaps. I mean, I don't like the fact that they're referred to as electric chaps for the rhyme, and that implies that they're all... Boys. And I don't think that Hattie Fatness particularly have any kind of gender. No, I don't think they do either. Lil Mai comes prepared as well. One of the things I like is when she just suddenly has an umbrella in the rain in the next page. (laughs) Nobody else has got an umbrella. She must have kept it in her pocket, which is another part of that size. Yeah. Not really mattering because it's a giant umbrella. Yeah. I mean, and maybe she's got the umbrella because her sister cries often. I don't think it's too funny. So that's very Alice as well, isn't it? The Sea of Tears. Yes, it is. There's definitely a lot of Alice in Wonderland or Through the Looking Glass even in this. Did you like that in this one, Moomin Mama's handbag has got... M-M on it. She's monogrammed her handbag. For Moomin Mama, yeah. (laughs) I did notice that and like it, yeah. And I thought that the way that the temporality of this book works reminded me of Snufkin's flag. Yes, me too. Because you can see him in the past and him in the future at the same time. And we can often see the characters in the past and the future at the same time in this book. Yes. And this book also does what the play in Moomin Summer Madness does of like breaking the fourth wall coming out of the book inviting participation even when it asks you to draw the philijonk there's a phrase fattering hats which I didn't understand well it's thingy me and Bob speak for Hattie Fatners right oh you blow my mind (laughs) but Mimble's saying it not thingy me or Bob Wow, that is a bit oblique yes. and a strange decision. So do you have any Nina's mistakes for this, Nina? Well, I thought Fattering Hats was. You're giving the thing of me and Bob line to someone who's not thing of me or Bob. I agree with that. I didn't even understand it until you explained it to me. I think there's also, at least in my copy, there's a typo. So it says see thing through, seething. Oh, it's no, it's seething. seething. 
But yes, I tripped up on that when I was reading it aloud too. That's where the font lets you down because it looks like it's sea thing. Yeah. But I still don't understand it as sea thing either. Hemelin seething through and through. Yeah, like angry. I just find it a very strange way of phrasing it, which I guess is based on the rhyme. It's for the rhyme scheme. I mean, you always get this. I think for children's books and for poetry especially, it's much more important to retain the form over the meaning sometimes. Yeah. I think you have to with poetry. You know, I mean, you, you can read really bad translations of really good poems where the meaning is preserved exactly and the beauty is all gone. And I think the beauty is really important here and the way it sounds sort of does matter more than exactly what it means. And if Sophie Hanna has sacrificed some meaning to it sounding right, I'm sort of on board with that decision. But this is one of those places where you can see it and it does trip up the reader a little bit. Yeah. Listeners may remember that I used to, for quite a few years of my life, be employed to read picture books to children. It was one of the parts of the job. There were multiple parts of the job. It's a great part of a job, though. This book I did think about once reading to children. Okay. I mean, I hadn't read it properly through, but I looked at it once. And I decided not to for numerous reasons. One was because I used to read to groups of children. Mm. And that is a different beast from reading to an individual child. The reasons for not reading this to a big group of children were that there's too many words. It's long. And the words, I love this font, but they're not easy to pass quickly and easily. And upside down as you're often holding it. And then there's the fact that it rhymes, but it's quite unfamiliar kinds of rhymes. That, again, puts it into the kind of difficult category. That said, it's got loads of the features that I like in a picture book to read to a group. In fact, I would say it's quite ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Like nowadays, nearly all books aimed at toddlers are aiming for this kind of interactivity, really. They want to poke their fingers through the holes. They want to touch it, move it. The books that it made me think of the most in terms of picture books were There Are Cats in This Book and There Are No Cats in This Book by Viviane Swartz, which are great books. They do what they say on the tin and they are very interactive. There's more flaps in those books, but they are very much about asking the audience and Mm. engaging with the audience. And they have like, there's a brilliant moment in There Are No Cats in This Book where they go off and there's like a blank page and you're like, is this the end of the book? And then you turn the page over and it's like, we've come back. You waited for (laughs) us, which is great. It's also, of course, like The Hungry Caterpillar and and Eric Carl books in general, I think. Or Don't Put Your Finger in the Jelly, Nelly. Yes. Oh, that's a great one. Yes. I do love that one. So when you first put your finger through the hole, you're putting it into a food item and then you turn the page and it turns out the food item is a monster eating your finger. That's right. Yeah, that's by Nick Sharrett. I also want to mention my favourite book in rhyme that is interactive, that is really hard to get hold of, just like the early versions of Moomin, Mimble and Little Mai. It's called Zoom. I don't know if you've ever come across this book. Nope. It's by Jonathan Emmett and Christian Fox. And I shouldn't like this book because it's about 
vehicles. Oh, but toddlers love vehicles. But it does it so well. Vroom, vroom, here we are driving in a motor car. Rev the engine, turn the wheel, listen to the tyres squeal. Dash along this country lane, just in time to catch the... And then a train comes. And for this page, I'll do like a... <laughs> thing and move the train up and down and it goes... Chuff, chuff, don't hold back. Race along the railway track. Keep the engine running fast. Hear the rails go rattling fast. So that gives you a sense of it. So we'll gloss over the next few bits. The next page goes into a boat where I make the pages go up and down. And then the next page, we've got an aeroplane which goes now, flies right at the children, flies over their heads, flies up. And then the final page, we've got a rocket. (laughs) Five, four, Three, two, one, all systems go, all engines on. It's time to strap ourselves in place as we blast off into outer space. That was amazing. I love this book. It's great. It should be in every library, but it's not in print anymore. So it's such a pop-up book, listener, that when Dave opened the book out flat, there is on every page a 3D vehicle, separate parts that move separately when you flap the book around. I can see that it would be a real hassle to make, to print and to assemble, and really easy to ruin. Similarly, you can see the next place. Yeah. And the past place. So it's got the temporality of the Mm -hmm. book we've been looking at. That final page with the rocket where you can actually, like, if you've got a group of kids, move it up in the air above all of their heads. And if you're a tall human, you can really get it up high and amaze them. Like, when it disappears, it's like doing a magic trick for the group. Yeah, it was a bit like that when you snapped the book shut. (laughs) It makes me think of The Haunted House by Jan Pienkowski. Yes, that's another really good one. So The Haunted House, also really hard to get hold of. There is stuff to do on every page. And you know when, like, there's a pull the tab or a turn the wheel? Well, this sort of makes double use of them. So, for example, on this page, when you turn the wheel, the cat's eyes look around. But in the same wheel, on the next page, changes the weather on the clock. So they're like multi-use little tabs and wheels. The monster comes all the way out of the book. Yes. (laughs) I'll I'll turn it toward you. It's a creature coming out of the book, gnashing its teeth. (laughs) And and flapping swords coming out of a box. Yeah. Yeah, and it makes the saw sound, doesn't it, if I remember rightly? It does. Yeah, like I say... Tuve is ahead of her time in this book. Yeah, for sure. I'm almost sad you can't go back in time and say, Tuve, in the future, we're going to have pop-up books as, a, as an option. I know. We're going to have all of these things. What would you do with them? Yeah. And then like come back to now and go like, here's the Moomin version of pop-up book. I actually wish that more kids did what this book and also the one we're going to come up to talk to about in a moment. But I wish there was more draw in your own picture. Yeah. It's so countercultural, though, like people who and, you know, I am guilty of this, that loving books is part of their personality. So many of them are like, oh, don't bend the page. Don't draw on it. I disagree. I think it's your book. 
do with it what you will. The same with like don't highlight bits or like put notes in the margin. Like marginalia is delightful. Yes. Like I sometimes have really enjoyed books because I've read the book and then the extra layer of reading what the person writing in the margins has to say about it. Sometimes that's annoying. It depends on who the person writing in the margins is, but it is delightful. And, and you know, now my dad's dead reading some of his old books that he's written all over in notes it's like a window into a part of my dad that I never would have seen you know almost all of my Diana Wynne-Jones books were bought at a house sale from an old scholar who was a real Diana Wynne-Jones fan so this guy had studied Diana Wynne-Jones and like lectured on her and stuff but just so that we're clear like these are sometimes slightly silly fantasy books and he's taking them so seriously there's a great one called the time of the ghost and one of the real innovations of the time of the ghost is that the main character is a ghost and she's gone back in the past to her life and her family this is a family with four daughters she doesn't know which one she is so she's trying to work out which one of these people am i like she changes her mind a bunch of times like throughout the book oh i must be this one oh no i must be this one and then like about five minutes before the end, it's revealed which one she is. And like the professor whose book this was got really excited and underlined it and was like, at last! <laughs> That's who she is! The first mention of who she is, five pages from the end. The revelation! Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah. it's it's kind of like watching a film in the cinema with other people in the yeah. audience and you hear yeah. when they laugh. And I, and I think the thing is with picture books with young children, it's a balance. Like what we've been saying with, you know, Zoom or with the haunted house like you can't just give these to a child who will just rip them up you have to keep an eye on the child but the idea that the child can't engage with the book in complex and multiple ways is not good i do wish more books would encourage this kind of interactivity where you get to co-create she's left quite a big blank space on that page for you to draw she's not joking yeah. She's like, do a picture of the filijonk after she's calmed down. Yeah, it's not even a simple thing. It's not like draw the same filijonk. It's like, I've shown you the filijonk uncalm. You've got to work out what the filijonk calm looks like. Yeah. And that's quite a, a complex brief. I love that. Shall we move on to Who Will Comfort Toffle? So this one came out in 1960. After Moominland Midwinter and before Tales from Moomin Valley. So this one, for the second time ever, Tuve has dedicated a book to a girlfriend. This is for Tuliki, who was her partner for, what was it, decades? Right, and who Tutiki in Moominland Midwinter was based on. Right. And Tutiki is in this book. She's not named, but she's in it. Who Will Comfort Toffle, A Tale of Moomin Valley, is about a little boy called Toffle. This kid has anxiety. He lives in a big house all by himself, and he gets really scared in the big house all by himself, and he feels really lonely, 
And uh, so he spends this like long and terrifying night in his house with like grokes growling outside and hemulins stomping. Leaves the house on a journey because he'd rather be anywhere than like spend another night in that house. He forgets to close the door and so he realises it's going to rain on his carpet and he's a bit sad about that, but on he goes. He walks through a series of crowded situations, parties, carriage rides, uh, fun fair, and in every situation sort of sees that everybody else is having a really good time and he's having a really bad time and why doesn't anyone notice him or include him? And at the end of every page the narration invites you to sort of put a bit of that responsibility on him that he's also not taking part. In his travels, he sees Snufkin playing a silver flute and he's like, oh, it must be nice to be Snufkin. Snufkin never has to worry about anything. He goes to the beach. He quite enjoys the beach. He puts his feet in the sea, finds a really big shell and wishes that he had somebody to share the shell with. So this is sort of the first admission that maybe... There's a real desire in him for companionship. Then we get a message in a bottle like we did in Flood. It's also not signed as in Flood. And as in Flood, it is basically a distress call. Somebody, a miffle, is really, really frightened and needs to be phoned up or written to. Toffle decides that this is his mission. He's going to save the miffle. So he goes off. He uses his suitcase as a boat. He's already getting a bit braver because he started asking people have they seen the miffle and before he wasn't speaking to anybody at all. He finds Edward the Booble from (laughs) (laughs) Memoirs of Moomin Papa. Edward the Booble is fishing and he's like, Edward the Booble, have you seen the miffle? And the Booble's like, oh yeah, she went that way. She looked really frightened like a day ago. So he follows these tracks. He goes through a very scary wood. He meets the Groak. (laughs) And this is a very scary page. The moon is covered over and the Groke has made everything really cold. Toffle decides to be really brave. He does like a war dance, a battle dance. And then when the Groke's not looking, he bites her on the shin, which makes sense given their relative sizes that he could reach her shin. Although it doesn't make complete sense because Grokes don't have any shins. She hasn't got shins. (laughs) (laughs) The Groke runs away and the Miffle is saved. Suddenly, this very dark book is suffused with colour. Their eyes meet across a meadow of flowers. They join in the party. They go in one of the boats with the Filijonk. Everybody's really happy for them. And they move into the shell and live happily ever after. So I think as interesting as that first book was about colour, I think this one is even more so. Yeah. So a lot of the pictures of Toffle, including the very first opening picture of Toffle, are only really using black and then maybe like some dots of yellow for light. So a lot of the pictures are really, really dark. The party pages, the pages where Toffle meets other characters, are often very colourful. And in those pages, Toffle is noticeably small and colourless. Yeah. And in the corner... Toffle lives in a colourless world. Other people are all experiencing colour. Like, colour is underlying the message of why aren't I having the life other people are having? Like, he sees the lives other people are having in colour, but he sees his own in black and white. Yeah. And in those mainly or exclusively black and white pictures, she's using a technique called pointillism. 
Pointillism was a style that was sort of invented and pioneered by French artists Georges Seurat and Paul Signac. It was also used by famously Van Gogh. And we know that Tova went and studied art in Paris in the 1930s and 40s, I think. And so may well have been influenced. I mean, this is after their time, obviously, but by certain styles that were more popular in France at the time. Pointillism is when you've got a picture made up of lots of little dots or lots of little dashes or lots of little brush strokes often, and it relies on the fact that seen from a distance, your human eye will coalesce all of those little dots together. Think Starry Starry Night by Van Gogh. Yes. Starry Night Paint your palette blue and grey Look out on a summer's day With eyes that know the darkness a lot of Van Gogh's pictures do use pointillism, but that's the one that it's really very clear in, I think. Yeah. Because I was looking around my room at my Van Gogh pictures and I was like, none of these demonstrate it as well as that one. Oh, I see. I'm a bit of a Van Gogh head. <laughs> I really like him. Yeah. It's often sort of elements of the natural world, but it uses it really well to give sort of texture to the water and the trees in this book. It's used mostly in sort of the dark places. How you suffered for your sanity And how you tried to set them free They would not listen, they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen this book is definitely for older readers than the first of the two. Yeah. It's got a lot more text. There's a lot more words in it. I would also say this book is a bit of a horror book. Yes. The pictures are scary pictures at times, for sure. Yeah. And dark pictures, menacing yeah. pictures. The grokes in it, which should give you a, a sign that it's a horror. And also Edward the Booble, although he's not called Edward in this. He's just called the Booble. Is, a, again, a bit of a horror idea, like he's a giant monster. And even the Hemulins at the beginning, which is what you were kind of referring to earlier on about Hemulins in this book particularly being like a much more sinister presence. Yeah, like an antagonist. The Hemulins are ginormous compared to his house. And actually, I think if you look at the Hemulins' faces, they're just living their lives wandering about. Yeah, I think they're fine. But from his point of view, these giant Hemulins, just like Edward the Booble, could accidentally stomp him. Yeah. But then when he meets a Hemulin, they're much smaller. So I feel like maybe he's imagining those giant Hemulins. I really like this one. It's much more about, like I said, anxiety, fear, loneliness. But I think that's great. I think that's great in a picture book. Lots of children that young have anxiety and fear and loneliness. Oh, absolutely. Young people have the whole range of emotions that older people have. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, Toffel has got anxiety and is afraid of socialising in the world, but also attracted to those things. Yes. But so is Miffle. Yes. And so by them coming together, they can give each other the moral support to live the lives that they might want to live in the world. I remember when my niece was very little, my partner was working in schools at the time. She had a crow puppet called Ivan that had a very squeaky beak. And she would use this in schools as a learning aid. And we thought, oh, yeah, my niece will like that. And we introduced my niece to Ivan. 
and she was terrified of Ivan, <laughs> upset by him. You know, we had to like stop squeaking him because it was upsetting to her. But then later on, I remember very distinctly her like going up to him when nobody had their hand in him and yeah. sort of negotiating with him, getting closer and closer and then touching him. They made peace, like she made peace with Ivan. Yeah. And, and you know, that's the kind of complex internal life that children have. Yeah. And a book that explores that is very valuable, I think. Yes. It's interesting in terms of chronology. This comes between Moominland Midwinter, which we'll get to, but is, is a story maybe about isolation. Okay. But it also comes before the tales, which each tale will be about a different character, a different thing. And this is the same. Like, Toffle's not going to come back. This is Toffle's story. Yeah. This is, in a way, the first of the tales from Moomin Valley, I feel like. Well, it even says that at the beginning. It says, a tale of Moomin Valley. Right. This is Duve, I guess, practising, in a way. Yeah. Although to say practising is to undermine the amount of artwork she's done. I think Misabelle's in this. Yes. Tutiki is next to her. A mimble is sort of clinging on to Tutiki. Like that does look like a lesbian couple in there. Well, if you think that the mimble is supposed to mean sex or lover, it might be a very coded message in that page. There's a load of hatty fatness at that party as well. Yeah, they're just hanging out. Nobody's running away from them. It's really nice. Finally. Hattie Fatness are getting accepted. Little Mai and uh, the Mimble's daughter have a cameo, but they don't really do much. Same with Snufkin has a cameo. The Snufkin picture is interesting, I think, because the sun in it looks like a halo. It kind of looks religious. It is interesting. Also, he hasn't got his mouth it's a flute. he's got a silver flute how do you feel about that it is a bit weird to me yeah i was given this very picture actually as a print last christmas and it isn't a snufkin picture i particularly identify with it doesn't feel to me like snufkin looks in many of the pictures that we get a flute is confusing we've not seen him play a flute that's a very sort of howl's moving castle the film image isn't it the field of flowers and the beautiful sun and the beautiful music the cute character it also looks like a kind of pie piper thing as well like yeah. i thought maybe that's why he's got that kind of instrument but i think the main reason he's got a flute is so that he can do that pose yeah you can't do that pose with a mouth organ and i think that's how tuve thinks right yeah she's like i want to do that <laughs> who cares about continuity yeah <laughs> and it is a very very beautiful image i think i can see why someone has gone to the bother of framing it like it works as a piece of art outside of the context of the book completely. With both the books, there are pages that have bits that you could easily frame and put in an art gallery. (laughs) Miffle's hair changes, doesn't it, when she meets Toffle? It's very heteronormative. Yes. It's very, like... Toffle finds his masculinity in response to Miffle's vulnerability. Yes, that's true. Although his masculinity involves doing a dance and then biting a shin that can't exist. (laughs) Sure, sure. I'm not saying, I'm not saying he's like a toxic masculinity bro, but it even uses the line like, oh, I have to go because there's a girl who needs me. It's about her being a girl and him being a boy. Oh yeah, this is some bad... 
messages in that regard. I do love the image of him doing his war dance. Yes. But one of the reasons I like it is because he almost looks like little Mai in that picture. He does. He's found his inner Mai. But you're right. He does the same thing that Moomin Troll does in Comet and Moomin Land. As soon as he knows she exists, he's already imagining this complete romance. And then when he meets her, they just make that happen. Yeah. I mean, and that is a bit like how romance media will affect growing minds. They will form a complete story in their head and then try to make it happen. Let's be honest, that's not just children. No. Adults do that all the time. But you wanted to talk about the hair transformation. In this page with the Groke, you can see the great dance that Toffle's doing. And then, is Miffle being held prisoner? By the Groke? I feel like no. No, she's just kind of like looking. She's just there. The impression I got, and I think that you can read this between the margins of the text. I think she was just walking past the Groke and then saw that the Groke was there and then got so scared that she climbed up on the rock and is like hiding from the Groke, but the Groke doesn't really care. Yeah, I think so. But anyway, so she's up on her rock. She's watching Toffles dance with a worried expression upon her face. And she's, again, we've talked about the use of colour. This page is nearly all grey and black and white. You know, she's not the most detailed part of this picture. So she's just a sort of little blob with very straw yellow blonde hair. So we turn the page and we get a close-up look at the Miffle. And her hair has become orange and yellow, I suppose. Yeah. It's all feathered. Sort of almost like a wig. Or like a phoenix. Is uh, feathers. Yes. She reminds me in this moment of Tulipa in The Flood. She's very pretty. She's got really big blue eyes. She's holding a flower. She's wearing this sort of white gown and a black bow tie, I think it is. Oh, maybe. No, it's a Peter Pan collar. In the next page, they get married. So they're as quick as the... Uh, the fuzzy and... The muddler. Now, this is my favourite moment in the book, though. So we have another moment of interactivity. This book doesn't have much interactivity. There's no call and response. There's no questions. Well, there is. Who will comfort Toffle now? Oh, I guess that's the question. It feels more rhetorical in this. It is. So who will comfort Toffle now? Will someone lend a hand and help him write to Miffle so that she can understand? And then it says, find some writing paper. You won't need a stamp. Just stick the letter on a rose bush where you're sure Miffle will see it. And the next page refers to that letter that you've written for Toffle. Yeah, so you have to stop the book here. Yeah. You have to write a letter explaining all of the story that's happened so far. <laughs> and then you have to go out and find a rose bush to stick it on. That is great. And <laughs> if you get this book for your child, please do that. Like, know it's coming up in advance. Prepare it. Don't read it late at night. Have some writing paper and a rose bush. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Work out where the rose bush is. But that is so great. I really like that it's repeated in a way that you think is rhetorical. And then right near the end, it's like, well, it's you. You're going to write the letter. <laughs> The second time it said, but who will comfort Toffle? For in fact, a happy band of fellow Toffles moved straight in and took the place in hand. <laughs> so he leaves his house because he's lonely. And immediately a bunch of other ones like him move in. And he never knows because he never goes back. <laughs> he lives in a shell by the end. So a whole load of people went into his house and they're having a party. The lights are on. And there's a whole load of people. He wouldn't have been alone. No, I know. If he'd just waited. We don't see the moment of violence to the Groke, which no. is probably because the Groke doesn't have shins, Tuve. You designed the Groke. 
And we don't know, to be fair, if the original text... Maybe Toffel bit another part of the Groke. Maybe this is a Sophie Hannah edition. Yeah, because Shin rhymes with win. That's right. What this reminded me the most of is the poems of Edward Lear. Don't know them. They're nonsense rhymes. Is it like Spike Milligan, that kind of thing? Kind of thing. So the owl and the pussycat right, okay, is the yes. most famous one. Like the owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money wrapped up in a five pound note. The owl looked up to the stars above and sang to a small guitar. Oh, lovely pussy, oh pussy, my love. What a beautiful pussy you are. You are, you are. What a beautiful pussy you are. There's a lot of boats in this book. There's a lot of, like, odd logic that makes sense, living in a shell, all of that stuff. I mean, I'm sure there are Edward Lear equivalents who wrote in Swedish or Finnish. He was born 1812, died 1888, so could have easily been on her radar. He wrote a lot of limericks and literary nonsense Literary nonsense on Wikipedia is a broad categorization of literature that balances elements that make sense with some that do not. I mean, this is Lewis Carroll as well, right? Lewis Carroll is very much like that. Yeah, exactly. They dined on mints and slices of quince, which they ate with a runcible spoon. And hand in hand, on the edge of the sand, they danced by the light of the moon. The moon, the moon. They danced by the light of the moon. I've definitely heard that, yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things where if you don't know the name Edward Lear, you've definitely heard The Owl and the Pussycat on a child's tape in the, in my case, 80s, in your case, 90s? 90s, yeah. That makes me feel old. <laughs> Early 2000s even, maybe. I wanted to pull out the Alice in Wonderland comparison because there's this bit right at the end, I'll read it out. When Miffle reads the letter which she finds a little tough, Toffle's peculiar signature is difficult enough. Her roses turn from white to red right before Miffle's eyes. Miffle falls into Toffle's arms, gives him a hug and cries. So this is a moment in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. It happens when the Queen of Hearts is ordering her soldiers to paint the white roses red. It's sort of this very iconic moment in children's literature, even though it's written by a horrible man. It's entered into sort of, I think, especially through the film as well, the Disney film, it's entered into a sort of our popular imagination. Absolutely. There's a whole song. There's a lot of symbolism to that picture, I suppose. So in Alice, the Queen of Hearts is this terribly cruel and brutal person. Her soldiers have maybe planted the wrong kinds of roses and they've come out white and they should be red. And we're into Natural History Corner by now, by the way, just so you know. With red and with white, so red, you know, it's the colour of blood, it's the colour of violence, it's the colour of passion. Well... The fact is, miss, we planted the white roses by mistake. And the queen, she likes them red. If she's so white instead, she'd raise a fuss. And each of us would quickly lose his head. Goodness. Since this is a buckwheat bread, we painted the roses red. Painting the roses red. We're painting the roses red. Go down the 
have seen or say that's what we said. But we're painting the roses red. Yes, painting the roses red. Not pink, not green, not aquamarine. We're painting the roses red. Whereas white, it's got sort of these connotations of purity, of virginity, untouched snow. So it sort of works in Alice as like this horrible queen doing this violent thing. But I feel like here, it's a bit like we're going to talk about Philip Pullman, his dark materials again. It's a bit like dust as like the loss of innocence being a good thing. Right. You know, and coming to life, going from this sort of pallid, pale version of yourself to full coloured. Yeah, it's colouring in, isn't it? He's lived in a grey world and she's lived in a white world, I think. Yeah. And they both are kind of coloured in. I wanted to talk about the symbolism of the roses as well. So right in the last picture, when they're obviously getting married, although this isn't mentioned in the text, it's only in the picture. So they're in a rowboat being rowed by a filly jonk and the miffle has maybe changed her outfit. She's put some pearls on around her neck and she's got this bouquet of red roses in her lap. And then there are two clusters of grapes hanging out of the boat as well. And there's like a gazebo over their heads. So roses have been associated with romance like forever. It's really hard to see exactly when that started, but it was linked to the goddesses Venus, or you might call the same goddess Aphrodite, like all the way back then. And those goddesses, the goddesses of love, obviously, they're also goddesses of wisdom and secrets. God is in the roses. Petals and the thorns Storms out on the oceans Souls who will be born And every drop of rain that falls Falls for those who mourn God is in the and the thorns. And there's kind of a, a Freudian element to roses too. Is there? Yeah, because of the petals. Petals, right. Opening. Toffel has become wiser through this book. And I think that the link between wisdom and love that was in antiquity is not one that we have now we don't feel like those are connected concepts now i don't think no if if anything we think that love makes you a fool you know you're a fool for love yeah it makes you naive whereas here i feel like it's much more that love has made him wiser and like a more experienced and full member of society more connected with the world and i think maybe that's how tuve was feeling if she as she was relatively new in love then yeah. i mean and that is how you feel in new relationship energy you feel like whoa everything is coming together i'm almost magical like the magic yeah. of this feeling comes out and brings the world into you there's also grapes in that picture yeah. as well right so abundance fertility all those ideas about grapes in terms of greek gods you've got dionysus is the yes Bacchanalia, all that stuff. The second ghost in Christmas Carol is, is, is that kind of way. Yeah. Who are these four Handmaid's Tale type creatures? They're like cows in Handmaid's Tale dresses. Yeah. <laughs> 
I don't know who they are, but those kind of characters do pop up in Moomin stuff quite often. When she's got some pages to put characters in, she'll just put a load of characters in. Yeah. And there's no Moomin in this book. Though there are some at the party. In the absolute furthest distance, there's a definite Moomin in silhouette. Yeah, it's true. This is not a book about Moomins. Most of it happens in this massive, expansive water. But if Tuve says it's Moomin Valley, it's Moomin Valley. That's just the way it goes. If she wants to completely change the layout and flora and fauna of Moomin Valley and the, she can do the that. geography, she just does. I mean, she doesn't ask our permission, and nor should she. Did you like this one? Uh, I liked it well enough, yeah. Didn't like it as much as the first one. I liked it more talking about it. There's quite a lot of words. Yeah, this is something that dates both of these, I think. By modern standards, there are way too many words per page for a picture book. And with this one, the thing is, in the first one, the rhyme just about like works Mm. but i feel like with this one it would have been better off getting rid of rhyme yes always having to be saying it in meter and like where's the rhyme and where do i emphasize it just becomes a bit much both of them don't have the tone of the moomins because they're in rhyme and they don't have the same feel as the text of a moomins book one of the things i enjoy the most about the straightforward moomins books is their specific tone yeah so it doesn't really do it for me but you enjoyed this one right i did i i feel it's more dated than the first one even though it's younger the other one feels much more timeless and much more ahead of its time and this one feels very 1960 yeah right that's right that's how i feel about it yeah if she'd only made picture books i don't think i would have been captured by these books the way that i'm captured by the moomin story it doesn't seem like the best shape for her stories to take You know, I think a lot of artists who work in a lot of different mediums, they will be better at some than others. As a counterpoint, though, to that, it maybe is the best medium for her artwork. Yeah, these are stunning. They're lovely, lovely objects. If you can't be bothered with all the words, just flip through and tell yourself a story. Yeah, like these really bring out her artistness, the the part of her that made murals, the part of her that made paintings. So, on this podcast, we like to ask the question, what would Snufkin do? And if you would like to ask that question, then you can. Send in your questions for Snufkin via us. Like, we will channel Snufkin. Snufkin, I'm afraid, won't speak to you directly. And you can message your questions to us at the Goblin on Twitter and Instagram and at thepodhat at gmail.com. And this week, we have a question from a caterpillar, and I think Dave should read it. In the light of the moon, I lay on a leaf inside a little egg. One Sunday morning, the warm sun came up and... Pop! I hatched out and found that I was a tiny, very hungry caterpillar. What would Snufkin do? So, if you haven't read this book thousands of times to a child, as I think both of us probably have, this is the beginning of The Very Hungry Caterpillar that we were mentioning earlier by Eric Carle, as rewritten by Dave for our purposes. We decided last time we did this that Snufkin has no other context than the question we've given him. He doesn't know the whole book. So what would Snufkin do if he found that he was a tiny, very hungry caterpillar on a leaf on a warm Sunday morning? 
Snufkin likes pancakes. He does. He likes jam. He doesn't focus on food to the extent that some of the other characters do. Like, he doesn't, like, go on quests for food or, like, really hope for when the food's coming. He got sent that whole party table in Finn Family Moomin Troll. Indeed. It's part of the world and he loves the world. Yeah. And hunger is part of the animal experience. And Snufkin has no problem with eating. He was quite good at feeding the little woodies in Moomin Summer Madness. He understood that when a creature is very young, they maybe have to eat a little bit more often. Yep. And so Snufkin would say, as you are such a very young caterpillar, you should probably not leave too long between meals. You shouldn't let yourself get too hungry. And because you've just arrived in the world, your tummy will be completely empty. And so... You should find some food that you like, I think Snufkin would say. I think Snufkin's advice would change nothing about the story. Yeah. Because I, think, <laughs> I don't think Snufkin would say, don't eat ice creams and sausages and all of the things that caterpillars don't eat. Just eat what you want. And if you get a tummy ache, I know somebody who's got a handbag full of uh, tummy powders that can help you out. Yeah. Every single animal arrives into the world knowing how to eat in some way. Babies know hunger and they don't feel complicated about it and they don't feel guilty about it and they have bodily cues that they can trust. That's not terms in which Snufkin would say it, but that is the advice that Snufkin is giving you. Do not doubt your hunger. Just give it what it wants, be that a leaf or a cucumber or a sausage or an ice cream <laughs> or a bite of each of those things. He would sort of say, like, you, you're here now, so get what food's there now. And uh, anyone who's read the book will know that that begins with leaves because that's where the caterpillar is. But once yes. the caterpillar's eaten the leaves, Snufkin would be like, well, go out into the world, find things, explore. Like, you don't have to stay here. You were in a cocoon, but you're no longer in a cocoon, so you haven't even got a tent just go out find us yeah. find a shelter when you need it maybe take a little mini mouth organ <laughs> which you can play with your no fingers no hands snufkin would enjoy you know a caterpillar as well like i feel like yeah. if a caterpillar like landed on snufkin he would like let it move around him and if he wanted to leave leave and if he wanted to stay stay so i think if this happened and the caterpillar asked snufkin this like he might very well say well stay on my shoulder and i'll wander about you see other things you want to eat jump off eat, eat them yeah <laughs> within the original book you know maybe snufkin did meet the caterpillar that's how he got to the places with the ice cream cone and the <laughs> and the sausages and all of that you don't see it but in between the pages snufkin's tramping along yeah, tramping along taking him from place to place with the caterpillar on his sleeve yeah <laughs> Another thing we do on this show is we like to recommend texts or pieces of media that have the feel, the sense, the spirit of the Moomins. And my spirit of the Moomins this week is Gris, which is a computer game. It's spelt G-R-I-S. Gris is a beautiful piece of art for a start. So one of the reasons that I'm recommending it is it has a similar feel to both of these picture books. It's all about colour. It makes use of lack of colour and then colour coming. So it's very much like Who Will Comfort Toffle. It's 2D 
flat images. It's a platform game, so you're going from one side of the screen to the other. It gets progressively more complex, but not very hard. It's a very simple game. It's kind of about grief or depression, so it's a much more sad and melancholy text than the ones we've been looking at today. And you're basically playing a girl or femme person who has lost their voice and the colours of the world. And you're going out into this kind of abstract world. It's like a really interesting piece of work. I loved it a lot. There's a few scary bits, but there's no fighting. The artwork is so breathtaking and moving. And it kind of also feels a bit Greek mythy or like fairy story. It has like strange little creatures and strange little scenery and places that you go. And it's not a very long game. You can complete it within an evening, I think. I just loved it. Like it was such a delight to experience. It's just a beautiful piece of art that made me think of the Moomins a little bit. I concur. It's a great game. Yeah, it's a rare Spirit of the Moomins, which both of us are familiar with. My Spirit of the Moomins, I've brought an interactive picture book. It's a very modern interactive picture book. It's called Press Here by French writer and illustrator Hervé Tullet. It's been translated. I mean, to be fair, there are hardly any words. It's a very easy translation. He's this great sort of conceptual artist. So Press Here is a book full of abstract art and instructions as to how to interact with it. So the first page is completely blank with a yellow circle in the middle and it says Press Here and you get the child in your lap or you press the yellow circle and then turn the page and then the effect of pressing that button happens on the next page. It plays with size and colour, so sometimes when you press something, you turn the page, it's changed to colour, sometimes it's created another little dot, and then it says, like, tip the book on the left side, and so you tip the book on the left side, and then you turn the page and everything's fallen to the bottom on the left because you've tipped it that way. And then it's like, oh no, everything's fallen over. Tip the book wow. the other way. So you tip the book the other way. It feels like a book that has been written for children who have played with iPads because it's all that tapping, pinching, zooming in, zooming out. All of those ways now of interacting with a screen that I think so many children are really familiar with now, but made analog. It's brilliant. Wow. I have read it with children as young as one and a half and as old as six, and they all love it. That sounds brilliant. What's your Spirit of the Podgoblins hat? My Spirit of the Podgoblins hat this week is She-Ra Progressive of Power. It's a podcast which has run its course, actually. It's ended. So all of it is there to listen to. It was created by Lauren Fates and Eric Garnu, and they met doing politics, doing campaign work for a progressive Democrat candidate in local politics in the United States. So they met in that way and they were given the job of making a podcast and nobody in the team particularly understood what making a podcast was. And then that kind of ran its course and they kind of were like, what do we do now? And Eric is a real fan of the original She-Ra cartoon from back in the day. Okay, Lauren had not seen that so it's got a kind of dynamic like us like mm -hmm. one fan one person's fresh to it and how they started that show was they would pick a political topic and then they would watch one or two episodes of the original series and then use that as the way to talk about the politics that they wanted to talk about oh that's interesting 
But then what happened when they were starting to make that podcast, when they were about, I don't know, 20 episodes in, is that they heard that there was a new version of she being made. Which is the one you're a fan of, right? The one that I'm a big fan of. So they became a watch-along podcast for the new cartoon as it came out. And that new cartoon is she and the Princesses of Power. Shira and the Princesses of Power is an explicitly political show. Like the people who made it were designing it to have some political effects. And then there weren't any other podcasts out there that already had a following. So all of the cast and crew came on to Shira Progressive of Power and have been interviewed by them. So they've become something new. The podcast kind of changed in the middle. Yeah, that's interesting. But they remained about politics. Mm-hmm. It's a great show. That's my spirit of the pod goblet out. I think it does feel a lot like this show. Mm. I mean, also very different from this show. They don't edit as much as us, for example. <laughs> That's all for episode 11. But before we go, here are the tiny cliffhangers for next week's episode. How dangerous is a dangerous journey? What is Sorry Ooh's last name? And who is the villain in the dollhouse? Until next week, when we'll be reading The Dangerous Journey and Villain in the Moomin House, remember that spoiled milk is just an excuse for sweet berry juice. Bye! Bye!